With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipper, the club's vice president of media and editorial and the co-host for today's program. We hope you're staying safe and are healthy wherever you are. And we look forward to seeing you in person again one day when it's safe at the Commonwealth Club's headquarters in San Francisco. Until that happens, we're doing all of our programming online. Today's program is just the latest in more than 400 online programs the club has produced since the beginning of the shelter-at-home phase of the pandemic. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as audio and video from our past programs, at commonwealthclub.org. Now I want to introduce Michelle Miao. She's the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show, and she's a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for bringing incredible thought leaders to together to have these important conversations. Our guest today is Ifoma Ozuma, who's the founder and principal of Earthseed, a consulting firm advising individuals, organizations, and companies on the issues of tech accountability, public policy, health misinformation, and related communications. She is a tech policy expert with experience leading global public policy partnerships, public policy-related content safety development, and U.S. federal, state, and international policymaker engagement at Pinterest, Facebook, and Google. Ifoma, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for all that you are doing to make it safer for all of us um, as consumers, subscribers, employees of tech, or uh, you know everything else. Uh, why don't we start with your time at Pinterest and kind of what the initial culture was like what your roles and, and responsibilities were, you know, it'd be great. I know, I know what, what the end uh, culture was like, but when you first got there, what was it like? Well, I was recruited uh, from Facebook and before Facebook, I'd been at Google and uh, the way I like to relate the culture at Google uh, to the culture at Pinterest, or at least what I thought of the culture at Pinterest when I was recruited is going from like a Goldman Sachs to a family firm <laughs> and being in a place where people um, are more friendly and conversations happen more um, naturally than they would at a place that's seen as being so bureaucratic um, and rigid as a Google. My eventual experience was exactly the opposite. Um, the culture of niceness really um, supplanted and hid the um, actual culture at the company, um, which was uh, passive aggressive and top down um, and hid a lot of the discrimination that I ended up facing and heard from many other employees that they had faced after I went public along with a former colleague. So tell us a bit more about the discrimination you saw as well as the reactions to it or the non-reactions in the sense of non-support that uh, you saw. Yeah, so I started in the summer of 2018 and by the fall I had realized uh, inadvertently I saw 
uh, chart um, that I was on uh, for my pay. And many companies, uh, many tech companies at least, pay people according to levels. And so that's their way of um, being fair, or at least they say so. So people are paid by level and not based on them as individuals. What actually happened, and um, Oracle and Google and a few other companies are part of a large um, class action lawsuit for exactly this practice, is that often women, um, people of color, people on immigrant visas are slotted into lower levels so that they're systematically paid less, even though they're doing work uh, of a higher level. And that's what I found out in the fall um, of the same year when I joined. When I raised the concerns, I thought, this is such a nice place to work. Everyone's so friendly. I'm just going to have a friendly conversation with my manager about this. Uh, That went poorly. I then gave him a few months to work on it, as he said he would. Nothing happened, even though I was still um, serving as a public spokesperson for the company and the work that I was doing around health misinformation and political misinformation and other public policy issues. I then raised it with HR, as they tell you to do. I tried to go through all of the systems um, that you're advised to use at a company, knowing, though, that HR is often not there for the employee. They're there for the company and just hit walls the whole way through. And so about nine months later, I decided to engage an attorney. And then that's when I started facing retaliation um, and all sorts of other uh, misconduct that was just uh, appalling. And um, I wasn't naive through the process, but I was still surprised and hurt by the way I was treated when I just try to raise things the way that I was told I should. You know, a lot of, excuse me, a lot of these tech companies have a uh, diversity and an inclusion campaign. And, you know, I mean, these bold statements of, Um, supporting diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Curious what management looked like at the time that you were raising a lot of these issues. Um, Well, not as diverse as the marketing statements would make it seem. (laughs) So I, the, part about Pinterest too that was particularly surprising was having a male heavy executive team when as a product it's very different than Google and Facebook and other products um, where though their executive teams do not represent the user base for Pinterest it was just so wide uh, so crazily different and most of the people who use Pinterest in the United States and outside of the country, as far as I know, are women. And the executive team is not majority women. Um, the company was founded by two men who um, have surrounded themselves with other male friends of theirs and colleagues of theirs and executive roles. And so it just felt um, like I was experiencing a cognitive dissonance the entire time, both individually and culturally as a company, the entire time I was there. Now, did you say you were recruited by them from Facebook? That's correct. Did they make promises to you or how did they present the corporate culture that they wanted you to become a part of? Uh, That it was a much better place to work than Facebook was. And at the time, if you think of 
2018 and a lot of the pushback uh, and blowback that Facebook was getting following Cambridge Analytica, working on the public policy team there, I was sold that this is a completely different company. We're transparent about everything we do. We really care about our users. Um, we care about our employees. And um, I knew I've never been one to buy the we're a family thing, especially when you're working in a corporate setting. But I still thought, you know, I haven't heard anything bad about Pinterest. I haven't heard anything um, bad from former employees about their time there. And so not having, <clears throat> excuse me, not having heard anything, I thought, well, how bad can it be? And I found out. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that their their number one etiquette rule is be nice. And uh, I mean, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> workplace. Be nice. Go right. get me some coffee. Be nice. No. Right. Um. <laughs> and you know, the be nice thing is so funny. Um, I grew up in Alaska, but lived for a long time on the East Coast. And there are differences. And the, there was a meme going around about this on Twitter a few weeks back, that on the East Coast, people are kind, uh, or New Yorkers specifically. So New England folks are kind, but not nice. Um, and then in California, people are nice, but not kind. What I experienced at Pinterest was niceness, but not kindness. So no empathy, no sort of real interest in helping employees and living up to the values that the company um, put forward, at least through marketing and in recruiting materials. And so there was definitely the niceness and the veneer of being a place where people are happy, but not the kindness. Well, and sometimes in such situations, you see the the ethos of niceness being used more as a weapon of, well, you're nice, you're not going to cause trouble right? That's not how we do it here. Was that some of what you got or? That's what I got explicitly too. Um, I remember when I first raised the concerns that I had around my pay with my manager and my dog decided that now is when she wants to start barking. <laughs> um, he, he was angry at me that I raised them in an email. And I thought, well, you know, I, in a meeting setting, this is going to be an uncomfortable conversation. And I just really want to be respectful of your time and lay out all of the things that I want to talk about when we do have our one-on-one. -on -one. And it just from there turned into a completely unnecessarily combative situation. And that's, that was the first introduction for me of hey, this is the way we do things here. And the way we do things is not raising issues. And was part of his concern about the email, the fact that you had put it in writing and that it's on the servers and... That was it. Yep, that, that was exactly it. Um, and, and that was clear to me after we would have meetings and I would have an understanding of what we talked about in the meeting and then later we would have a conversation and he would completely deny that we had discussed things. And so then I realized, oh, I have to put this in writing. Otherwise, I'm not only going to be gaslit, um, what goes further up the chain will just be a lie and will completely erase any conversation that we had or anything that I've raised. Can we um, talk about, you know, the details of uh, the work that you were doing and and everything else that led to a very toxic work environment for you as a woman of color, as a woman, you know, at this this tech 
um, company, and especially around the policies that you were doing with regards to how, you know, what people were posting to their message boards and what can be considered racist or, you know, sexist or homophobic. And of course, these policies need to be in place. But how, as you said it, you know, even doing great things like that for the company, um, you were not necessarily rewarded, but investigated for that work. Yeah. So my role um, was, I I was doing a number of things. I was the second person on the public policy team globally and was recruited before the company went public. And that period when a company is going public, uh, there's a lot of scrutiny of the company's practices. At that time, if you think back to around the time when Uber and Lyft went public, that was the same time period when Pinterest did. And there's a lot more skepticism about social media companies going public. And so there was so much internal pressure to make sure that the company um, had good stories to tell around content moderation and was doing the work around the things that Facebook and Twitter and other social networks um, had been lambasted for. And so um, me coming in, a lot of uh, my role was in engaging with external experts. So whether it be civil rights groups or public health organizations around misinformation or hate speech or whatever else the company had issues with, I was doing that. And I thought my role was actually bringing the concerns <laughs> that these external experts had raised to the company and having us address them. And I had colleagues um, on the content safety teams and trust and safety teams who are 100% invested in that. But what I quickly learned was that executives were more invested in us not being part of the story and less in the actual work of cleaning up the platform being done. Um, and so I faced that. Uh, I had my first uncomfortable conversation around when we decided to um, remove Alex Jones from the platform. It was something that iTunes had done. Other platforms had already been talking about. So I thought, I mean, the content that's on here is clearly misinformation, clearly violates the policies that we have. So this is not going to be controversial. And yet it was. And I faced that again um, a few months later when Color of Change raised to me that um, slave plantations were being promoted as wedding venues. And that obviously is incredibly offensive (laughs) because of the history of um, slave plantations, their connection to torture and all sorts of um, evil things in our history but then also the time that Pinterest has to the wedding industry and the fact that it is one of those places where people plan their weddings and plan parties and plan um, things. And so I raised the concerns with the right folks, went through the process that we're told to, to take, uh, got lots of pushback, um, and the company ended up taking the recommendations that I made. Uh, there were a ton of positive headlines for the company, but then in my performance review, which impacted my pay, my manager said that I was wrong um, to have pushed my agenda, whatever my agenda was, um, apparently as a black woman who thought that slave plantations um, were offensive as party venues, um, but then also said that I should have um, presented the pros for, per- for promoting slave plantations on the platform. 
So that was just one of the many examples of retaliation that I faced that I 100% believe was tied to the um, wage discrimination issues that I raised earlier. From what I've read in, in uh, accounts of, of your, your, your situation, there are also messages and, and uh, you know, criticisms and, and insults and all this stuff coming your way. Talk a bit about that and what was or was not done about it. Uh, yeah, I was actually doxxed by an organization that um, has targeted particularly women. Um, they've targeted Washington Post journalists. Um, I think only women they've targeted. They've targeted uh, female employees at Google who have made decisions that they disagreed with. And so my name, um, my photo, my email, my cell phone number was shared across some of the most violent and horrific parts of the internet. And uh, the company was aware of it, was aware of the possibility that it could happen. Um, and next to nothing was done. And it was concerning not only for me, but also because uh, I have a younger sister who is easily identified once you are able to identify me. And I raised my concerns, um, ended up in a position where I had to reach out to former colleagues at Google and at Facebook and uh, basically recruit help from individuals that I knew to try to get things taken down and to protect my identity. Um, and it just was, it was incredibly upsetting. Um, and one of the things that was most upsetting afterward is the CEO of the company, Ben Silverman, acted as though he wasn't aware of the extent uh, to which I was threatened and two other women at the company were threatened. And I actually had an email exchange with him. Uh, on the day, either the day it happened or the day after, where I sent him screenshots of some of the messages that I was getting um, and I explained to him how afraid I was for my safety and my sister's safety. And just it, there was the niceness and not the kindness again. Um, and leadership to me means taking care of the folks who you bring in. Um, I was targeted not just because of my role, but because of who I am and made that clear to him. And there was just a complete lack of empathy that I think um, made clear what kind of leader he is. There were several other women, um, you know, who, who had talked about the toxic work environment and the discrimination that people face at Pinterest, uh, but they were afraid to you know, identify themselves. They wanted to remain anonymous in fear that the company would retaliate. What does that, what does that mean? And, you know, why would anybody be afraid to speak about such horrific experiences? Uh, people should know about this. I agree. People should know about it. Um, and it's, it's not just a fear, it's a legal reality. When as part of the separation agreements, that um, we're all forced to sign when we leave a place. Uh, there are NDA clauses, and there's one um, that I decided uh, to break, and I know that I still face the threat of legal action from the company uh, to share my story. And it's a, it's a practice that's become more common. It, Pinterest is certainly not the only place that uses them. They're not only used in the tech industry, but the purpose of those clauses is to keep people from sharing information about their experiences that could then um, damage a company's reputation. 
But uh, ultimately, is it's all about avoiding accountability. If no one knows that something is going on, the company doesn't have to do anything to address it. After I spoke up and my former colleague, Erica Shimizu Banks, spoke up, uh, the company brought on two Black female board members. They had never had a Black person on the board. Uh, they made a bunch of changes, or at least said they made changes to policy uh, a former colleague who's still there reached out recently and said, now they're sharing a pay transparency tool. So there are all of these things that the company is doing now. Um, but when we first went public, Ben's statement was that they had looked into all of our claims and none of it was substantiated. So I, I don't know which one he's going to say now it is, but I think the whole thing is interesting. What would have happened if you had not signed that agreement on your separation? Um, I would have had um, no health insurance at the beginning of the pandemic because I signed the agreement in March of last year. Um, I would have had no income. So I, my severance was contingent on signing the agreement, as was the health insurance that I got for a few months. Now I'm paying for COBRA, which is $900 a month. But I just you basically have to be independently wealthy or willing to have no income and no health insurance to not sign these agreements because they are um, contingent on you getting your compensation. We'll talk soon about the Silence No More Act that you're working on and that um, has to do a lot with these uh, NDAs or these things that you have to sign. Um, but going back to that, I mean, I, I we're asking you the right questions and you have the courage to come out and talk about this as an example. But then it almost makes me, it also makes me wonder like how many people are, are affected and staying silent. Do you kind of have an idea like how, how bad it is, uh, especially in the tech industry? Uh, I, I'm thinking of, I don't know if you both watched the Oprah interview with uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, but Oprah did the, were you silent or were you silenced? And the, the, your question makes me think of exactly that. Because these are secret agreements, because you can't even talk about the existence of the agreement, and that's made clear in the agreement, we have no way of knowing how many people um, change their LinkedIn to say they're no longer at a company and it was because something bad happened and they signed an NDA or they just decided to leave. The agreements are written in such a broad and restrictive manner that you can't even legally tell your spouse or your children or a future interviewer why you left a company. And so people are put in this bind where not only have you experienced the harm of discrimination, harassment, or assault, um, then you're pushed out of your job, your employment, and your insurance in this country. But then also in perpetuity, you can't ever talk about it. Um, and you're not even sure what you can say without getting legal advice from a lawyer who if they're worth their salt, is going to tell you just don't talk about anything because anything can be interpreted by a company lawyer or by an army of company lawyers to have violated your agreement. You, you mentioned that you have 
at least spoken up about this. Have you heard from Pinterest? Have they responded to you either through legal channels or made public comments about you? They have made public comments. Um, they were they, nice uh, they are asked often. The first ones were not. They basically insinuated that um, I and my former colleague had lied about our experience because they looked into everything. They didn't find any wrongdoing. Um, it, it begs the question of whether one can do an internal review and find wrongdoing. I've never seen that, whether it's in a police case or whether it's a company looking into its own wrongdoing and having the people who did the thing look into it. But uh, that aside, no, they haven't reached out directly. Um, and I think more than anything, is a lost opportunity for someone like Ben, who had considered himself one of the nicest CEOs in the tech industry, to just say, hey, we messed this up. And I know that lawyers will never advise a client to do that and to admit wrongdoing. But there really was an opportunity, especially in light of the racial reckoning that happened across the country last year, for him to say, hey, as a leader, I really messed this up. Whether it was because I wasn't paying close enough attention to what was happening, or I hired the wrong folks, or just the culture of things here made it such that people felt they couldn't tell me what was going on. Now that I know, I'm sorry. But that never came. And I don't know that it ever will. And and that always amazes me that with all the money behind these people, all all the stuff that's at risk, at stake, that there aren't lawyers and you know crisis managers who would sit down and say, you know what, giving an actual mea culpa and admitting you failed and you're working and stuff plays so much better. <laughs> I mean, when I whenever I hear hear or I I read, you know, someone issuing the old. Well, we're sorry if we offended someone. You, you just okay, great. Your lawyer wrote that, and and you're hoping that'll let you skate. But boy, when I've seen someone who's done something wrong, and has come out and said, you know, I was wrong. You know, I have no excuse on this. I am sorry. You know, I believe I'm much more likely to believe them and and wish them well and hope they don't get canceled. That sort of thing. But when I see that lawyered statement of of uh, you know. The, the, that shows little kind of like you're saying it, it goes through the niceties of the legal niceties with no kindness no humanity behind it i do judge them on that and and it's it's amazing to me that here we are in 2021 and companies still haven't learned what i think is a pretty obvious lesson end of sermon back to you michelle <laughs> well speaking of the uh, racial reckoning uh, let's go back there and you know i want to create some space for you to really share your thoughts. I mean, obviously these tech companies have not had the right policies in place have not have may have, you know, say that they are creating a culture that's diverse and inclusive, but even just from a hiring standpoint, a lot of these companies have had issues. And so if we're going to discuss, you know, beyond the performative statements and actually do some real work in building equity and building a, you know, diverse and inclusive and actual diverse and inclusive workplace culture. What does that look like for you? You know, I think so many uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, professionals 
have turned uh, this this exact question into a cottage industry. And I actually don't think it's that complicated. <laughs> I think you hire people who represent your user base. If you want to keep it to just the data and the numbers, um, you hire folks that represent who you want to sell to and you pay them fairly. Like I just don't think it's that complicated. You promote people based on the work that they do. You have it standardized such that um, you're not just hiring your friends or just promoting your friends. Like I actually don't think it's that complicated, but we've so overcomplicated it, I think, as a way to avoid any type of action. Google has spent tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions on diversity efforts and still has what 2% black people, like maybe just hire the folks who, who are available and not do all of these programs and bring people in to come and do presentations. Like, I think it's all um, BS, honestly. Arlen Hamilton is a, a black venture capitalist and, and uh, she was at the Commonwealth club, uh, I think earlier in this pandemic period, and she was talking about companies that, you know, would be coming to her and saying, well, we've got to come out with a diversity and inclusion sort of thing. And she's like, look, don't, I, I don't, I don't want to see your statement. You know, I'm not here to make you feel good. Do it. Like, just like you're saying, I mean, do it and, and you can show that and, and then have your words support what you've done, but just stop trying to say, stop coming to me and saying, what do I need to do to make this controversy go away? Right. And I wish that was more of the focus on action versus um, rhetoric. That with the amount of money that's spent on marketing around programs versus the actual just recruitment of people, I just, I, it doesn't even feel like a good business proposition at this point. There's do it, then there's also, you know, um, how you treat. The, the folks, I mean, you, I mean and, and really understanding, well, there's, there's the cultural competence part, but there's also like believing the people that work for you and caring for them, which is, we go back to what you had said. And with your experiences, I mean, you could, you could recruit all these people, but if you're still going to, you know, get, if they're still going to be gaslit or they're still going to be, um, silence in, in you know in your case that's not going to going to work either and so that's a great segue to what you're working on now not only have you had the courage to speak out and tell your story but you're also working on a policy that could really change things for folks let's talk about the silence no more act yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this because it's uh, of all the things that I've worked on um, in my career, it's the thing that I'm most proud of. Uh, I am working along um, with Senator Connie Leva, who authored the bill um, and Equal Rights Advocates and the California Employment Lawyers Association, among others, uh, to get this bill passed. What it would do is allow every worker in California uh, to speak about instances of discrimination, harassment, or assault on the job, regardless of what um, one of the two NDAs does so or says. So NDA can mean non-disparagement agreement or non-disclosure agreement. Often separation agreements, what you sign when you leave a company, has both 
in uh, built into the agreement, there are non-disclosure clauses and non-disparagement clauses. They're often written so broadly and so restrictively that you can't talk about anything that happened because if you talk about any of it, it could be seen as disparagement. If you talk about any of it, um, it could be seen as disclosing information that the company um, wanted you to keep quiet. And that's just wrong. Um, if we already recognize that discrimination, harassment, and assault are illegal and are um, wrong activity, and California already has a long list of the categories that are protected, then there's absolutely no reason why NDAs should keep people silent on those. Um, I want to say that NDAs have a role. Um, there's no reason why people should be allowed to share company secrets and confidential information that has to do with um, the business of a company, those are already covered. They're covered in separate confidentiality agreements. They are not touched by this law. Um, And so regardless of what opponents like the Chamber of Commerce uh, say and have said, uh, this would not uh, this would not put company secrets at jeopardy unless a company truly believes that discrimination is one of their proprietary <laughs> business secrets. Um, but that's that's just ridiculous on its face. And so I'm excited about the opportunity to talk about this on Tuesday at the um, Senate Judiciary hearing where uh, the bill will be brought up and then as it moves through the legislative process. And it sounds like it would be a big change. It's it's not the first uh, NDA bill that uh, Senator Le- Leva has, has has worked on. I guess there was SB eight twenty, which banned NBA- NDAs in certain cases. Is there more that needs to be done? Say this 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 law gets made. Is there like another frontier that, in in legal terms, that then needs to be addressed? Yeah, the most immediate frontier is addressing it for workers in every state. We're in the middle of a pandemic still, even though things are looking much better now that people are getting vaccinated. Um, But if you think of the pandemic context for white collar workers, at least, who have been able to move around, uh, you could have been hired in California and be living in Nevada or New Mexico, where I live, or North Dakota or wherever else. And where are you protected, where you reside or where your employment lays? So I I think it's important to not have fragmented worker protections across the U.S. And so federal action is what I would like to see. And then moving from the federal action, there are more categories that need to be protected. In Europe right now, there's um, an EU whistleblower directive that's moving through member states and being adopted by each country. And that's the sort of protection we need here. We need uh, the ability for workers to speak up about instances of um, misconduct that they're seeing, whether or not they're directly related to them as an individual. And right now, no such protections exist. That was that was my next question. What about whistleblower policies? I mean, some companies include them, and and uh, some states have them as laws. And um, how that would be impacted? Is it the same? Um, but it sounds like we need something much more I- inclusive, much more worldwide. Yeah, we do. We we need and we need explicit protections for whistleblowers, and we need more than just the protections. We need systems 
that incentivize whistleblowing. Right now, um, at the federal government level, folks can whistleblow to the Justice Department about certain things, and it's all it, most of it is industry specific. Um, but the SEC currently has the strongest whistleblower whistleblower program, and the incentives are baked right into the SEC reporting. So if you're a co- if a company is publicly traded, then the SEC um, will allow employees or anyone else to come to it with uh, tips. If a tip results in any sort of SEC action, the whistleblower receives a portion of whatever the fine is. That's a huge incentive. And that's exactly the kind of incentive that you want for a legal activity that's taking place. But right now, without any sort of protection, what we're asking people to do is report on illegal activity, lose their job, lose their health insurance, and then just good luck. <laughs> that's, that's not great. It's not a system um, that's set up for any sort of success. And do we know is, is, are these types of NDAs or both types of NDAs, are these most more prevalent in Silicon Valley than in other sectors of the economy? Um, or again, because people by definition don't talk about them, do we not have a way of knowing that? What, what's your thought? We don't have a way of knowing for sure and knowing numbers, but what we do know is they're used across all sorts of industries. Um, The first time I saw the kind of language that I ended up signing was around the Harvey Weinstein case, when the women who were forced to sign those NDAs uh, talked, broke their NDAs and shared some of the language. And when that was reported, I remember uh, looking at the agreement that I had and thinking, Excuse me? <laughs> how, is, how is it that we have, a, as a society, have agreed, at least for the most part, that what Harvey Weinstein did was wrong, but yet I'm sitting at a desk with a company that's never been reported on for workplace abuse. No one knows that this is happening, and I'm signing a document with the exact same type of language. Have you received any responses from, you know, peers, from folks within the industry uh, with regards to the Silence No More Act? From so many people, um, former colleagues at Google, Facebook, folks who are still at Pinterest um, and who just don't have the ability to leave right now because they're supporting their families. Um, I wrote recently um, and the, the piece that I wrote also received a lot of feedback about how. Um, employer-tied healthcare is a tech accountability issue. And I heard from a number of people who told me they either stayed in jobs longer than they should have for their mental health um, because their entire family was on their plan. And if they had decided to leave or spoke up about what was going on, not only would they be punished by losing their health insurance, but their family would as well. And that was an option that they couldn't make. Um, But I've heard from folks from other industries who have reached out and said, I wish I could have spoken up. I still can't, but thank you. Um, Or have told me what their own experience was. Someone reached out to me on Instagram to tell me about how um, his partner was forced to sign an NDA at a church she used to work at. So it's something that happens even in places that we don't consider industries. Um, Now, if you would tell us a bit about what you're doing now day to day and 
do you think if you wanted to get another job in a Silicon Valley company, are you hireable? Not because of your skills, we know that, but because of what you've gone through now. Well, um, I'm running my own consulting firm and living in New Mexico was something I had wanted to do. And so I'm glad to be here now. Um, I have chickens. I have uh, landscaping. <laughs> it's, it's sunny here most of the time. So I'm happy where I am. Um, and, uh, and so not looking to join another uh, Silicon Valley company anytime soon, but it's something I do wonder about, uh, what I take solace in is that anyone who wouldn't hire me because I spoke up about what happened at Pinterest is someone I wouldn't want to work for anyway. Um, but I speak from a place of privilege. I don't have a children that I'm supporting. And so I, I am in a place where the um, money that I'm making now with the consulting I'm doing covers my bills and I don't have to worry about a child starving or about a spouse or an elderly parent. Um, and that's not where a lot of people are. And so I don't, one thing that I like to um, say is that I don't blame anyone who hasn't spoken up. I don't blame anyone who hasn't left a job um, that is horrible because we all have the realities of living in a capitalist society and having bills and needing to function. Um, and especially living in a country where your health employment is or your health care is tied to your employment. I definitely would not ask anyone to speak up and then lose their insurance in the middle of a pandemic to join the cause. What do you think the future of these tech companies look look like? You know, I'll give an example. You know, like Uber, for example. We've known as normal, regular citizen consumer folks who've taken Uber before. We've known about the issues that Uber faces. The uh, you know assault allegations, the really horrible toxic culture, especially from women at Uber, and just recently, the way that Uber responded to a driver who was coughed at. Um, and, uh, and, you know, allegedly um, assaulted by writers in, in, a, in a very racist way. And they offered, they offered him, the story is they offered him $120 after these writers had pepper sprayed his car and he reached out to Uber for help. And so a former Uber founder, I think, was the one who actually uh, did a GoFundMe account for the driver. They ended up raising over $50,000. I think maybe it's at $100,000 compared to the $120 that Uber had offered to clean the car. So I'm giving this as an example of sometimes you almost feel like you're powerless as the consumer, that you could continue on saying like, this is wrong, this is wrong. But what changes are actually being made? Maybe there is an avenue because of folks like you and because of the tech exodus of San Francisco Bay Area and the pandemic. But what are your thoughts? What does the future of tech look like? Oof, it's a big question. Um, and I think, unfortunately, because of the power of the companies, your power as a consumer is is limited. It's not just it directly with the company. Um, you can decide not to use Uber. I don't use Uber anymore. Um, but what does that mean as an individual deciding not to use a company that still has users all across the world, many of whom have no choice? And this is where um, monopoly and anti-monopolistic uh, policy needs to take place. 
But uh, I think more of our power as individuals lies with um, pushing for the type of policy that we think is important. And that's why I'm using my expertise in the public policy realm to work on this bill. Um, the incentives currently just don't exist for the company. So I actually don't think we're going to see the type of change that we need to see without um, decisions, external decisions being made, like the one that was made by the UK's highest court, um, and that now forces Uber to recognize its drivers as employees. Uh, and even that is still limited. I think they will only be considered employees who get minimum wage when they have a ride. And so there's so many things that need to be addressed still. Um, but I, I don't think that's a reason not to push for the incremental change that we've seen. Well, speaking of kind of outside pressure, uh, you, you talked about you were at Pinterest at a time when it was in preparation to go public. What role do venture capitalist firms have to play? Because they're the ones who do pull the strings in, in those early years. They have incredible, they, they usually, right, have seats on the board. They have all the purse strings. Um, they're often very involved in the actual running of the company. What role for them? Oh, man, they're so accountable for or should be held accountable for many of the decisions that are made at these companies, because especially for the ones that haven't gone public yet, and even after they've gone public, if they push a founder to make a decision, uh, the founder is likely to make that decision. And so I, I just think it's disappointing that we don't see them pushing more for making decisions that prioritize safety and prioritize um, a healthy conversation and whatever else is a priority. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think, unfortunately, the incentives for them are also misaligned with things that we view as important, um, like safety. But uh, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't know what will get folks to say, hey, I'm still going to make a profit, but maybe it won't be as big if I prioritize making sure that these folks are paid fairly. Um, I don't think there's a world in which Jeff Bezos isn't a billionaire still if Amazon warehouse employees are paid fairly for the work that they do and are allowed to have breaks. Um, I don't think there's a world in which um, Uber CEO and former CEO and founder aren't billionaires too if drivers are paid properly. And so I just think it's all regrettable. Mm. Well, John asked a question about, you know, being hireable in the in Silicon Valley or any tech company. What do you think of, you know, getting into politics? Is that I mean, you are getting into politics, but I mean like running for office. Is that in the cards or for oh, your future? Goodness. Because of our system, um and the finances that are required to run. I, that's a barrier that I don't think I'm interested in attacking. Um, and I just, I mean, I really think you need to live in a place and know the place and be of service to the place before even considering something like that. And um, New Mexico is a relatively new home for me. And so I am more interested in getting to know my neighbors, getting recommendations for chicken coops right now, um, and writing support letters for things like a no trapping law that I support here before even thinking about entering politics. 
Um, well, talk a bit about, I mean, we, we talked about how this is not just a Silicon Valley thing. So continuing to focus on Silicon Valley can kind of seem um, contradictory in the, about that. But a lot of the, the there, there's within the Silicon Valley, I mean, there, it, yes, it's a big area, zillions of dollars here, but there, so much of it is friends hiring friends, friends investing in friends' companies, you know, the, the, the joke of, you know, however many people there are there from Stanford and Cal and, and not from outside much. Um, do you think the, the, I don't mean this to be a leading question, but do you think that the tech industry would be healthier if it were more dispersed across the country? I mean, there are obviously offices and such, but you know, the, the heart of it were, were more widespread and then therefore, you know, the people involved in it are widespread, different cultures in it are more widespread. Yes, absolutely. And I think, I mean, there aren't many upsides to a global pandemic in which over half a million people have died. Um, but one of the things that I hope we take as a lesson from this is people can still do their jobs for the most part without being all in a city where people can't afford to live or in um, an area where people can't afford to live the way that they would like to. And so I hope that companies, especially some of the ones that are coming up now, are just more thoughtful about um, how they support employees. And that includes supporting people who want to live near their families because they want their own families or who want to live somewhere where they can have a backyard versus just a patio space. And so I think that there are many different ways to think about diversity, and um, it's it's important to think about having folks all over, especially if you want a user base that's all over the country. Uh, there's a direct value in having people live close to the people who you want to serve. I'm not sure if we covered this, but um, but if so, if you could repeat it, if what if you know folks like myself or anyone listening uh, wants to get behind the Silence No More Act or join the crusade or support it in any way, can you do that? You absolutely can. We actually have our first committee hearing um, in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee in California and the California Legislature on Tuesday. And so the bill will be heard by the committee. Um, anyone can call in. The information is available on the California Senate Judiciary website. Anyone can call in, voice their support, voice their opposition if you do oppose. Um, and then if you live in California, uh, you are a constituent of either a senator or an assembly person um, and reach out to them. Let them know why you support legislation like this, why you think it's important. Um, and if you live outside of California, you can reach out to your representatives and let them know that you'd be interested in something like this, too. OK, Michelle, we can contact Scott Weiner and see what he's, <laughs> he's up to. He's he's on the committee. Is he? So, yep. Please reach out to him. Okay. <laughs> uh, one, we have a question from an audience member who's kind of taking what we were talking about earlier about uh, people who are using these services. And the question is. Would you say consumers continuing to use tech platforms that have, you know, shown to be problematic in these ways, knowing their rocky ethics practice at those companies, does that make them complicit in this silencing culture? 
Oof, this is tough because since there are so few options, um, I, I think it's unfair, honestly, to put it all on individuals. Yes, we all have choice, but if the only way you can keep in contact with your grandmother or your great aunt is through Facebook um, and you don't agree with the company's practices, are your choices really to not be in contact with your family member or to continue using a service that is exploiting people or harming them? I don't think that's a fair choice. And so I think that um, where individuals can step in is in pushing for legislative change. Um, if you know someone who works at the company, uh, encouraging them to speak up about what they know, because I think transparency breeds accountability. And so that's another way, but no, it's not on anyone individually. We, we've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, yes, the tech industry, and you'd mentioned you know, your own experiences, but all of this connects to the very challenging, very painful trauma that we're talking about um, socially as well. You know, what women are experiencing, uh, the violence and trauma perpetuated on you know, people of color, especially black people. And so I wanted to also give a moment, you know, for you to kind of tie it all back. And in my opinion, I think that if we do nothing and don't strive, you know, for change, especially on a policy level, then we're always going to be back at a point where we started, where history repeats itself. Does it feel like that to you each and every time you talk about what happened to you um, and Pinterest and in any other workplace? It does. Um, and I actually had a moment yesterday because I missed late um, two nights ago when the news broke about um, the murders in Atlanta. And so I saw it for the first time in the morning. And I just thought this didn't come from nowhere. There are whole communities online where people think it's okay to fetishize and to be violently misogynistic against Asian women specifically and women of Asian descent. And I, it, it doesn't come from nowhere. And I, there's responsibility there um, for the platforms where these conversations are still happening, where people organize to perpetuate violence. And so in addressing one, we won't necessarily address the totality of the other, but there was a consequence and there is a consequence that we're all seeing and experiencing and particularly um, our neighbors of Asian descent and Asian women specifically and Asian femmes specifically are experiencing because of the refusal to address things like the racist epithets that uh, that sprung up around the beginning of COVID and that have existed for as long as the country has. If you grew up in California or have lived in California and know Californian history, you understand that there's a long history, as long as there has been um, migration from Asia of anti-Asian sentiment and violence. And so none of this is new. Um, the platforms are a newer way of perpetuating harm. Um, and so, yeah. It's all connected and it's all really freaking depressing. <laughs> I just, it's all really sad. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, going back to, to the NDAs in particular, um, for 
employees of this company, you've talked about, you're, you're not judging someone who, who needs to stay or chooses to, you know, to sign an agreement, but do you have any advice to them to at least what to consider when, you know, they, they've gone through dis- discrimination things and it's just not work. They're going to, they're leaving, they're presented with this. What should they do? What can they do? Can they say, hold on, I want to run this past a lawyer or does that, does that backfire? I mean, any thoughts on, on, maybe what they could have in their mind at that point, because I suspect a lot of, I would be probably very stressed out and, 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 you know, it'd be nice to kind of know going into such a situation, what are my options? There are very few, unfortunately. Um, I think it's always important to have legal counsel. I had an attorney the entire time I was facing my situation, but that was something that I could afford to do. And unfortunately for many people, you're not in a position where you can afford to do it. I think uh, reaching out to legal services that provide pro bono advice is important, at least taking a second to read and understand the document as much as you can before you sign it, because there's never a rush. At the point at which you're being presented with a separation agreement, the decision has already been made. You're leaving. And so you you can take your time and take a breath to read over what you're being presented with. Um, and yeah, I, I think people should just try not to feel bad about what they end up signing because the power is so imbalanced that there's very little that you could do unless you're in an executive position uh, to change what you end up signing or what your situation is. Well, you always learn at the end of these conversations that there's so much work to be done. Um, the last and final question for you, Ifoma, is around, you know, for, for new folks, young folks, new generations or people entering the workplace for the very first time, and they have a very optimistic perspective of what they might be entering and, and what advice that you might have for them in kind of getting through it. Um, yeah. And just kind of like what to look out for, how to protect yourself, especially if you're a person of color, uh, you're black, you're queer, or, uh, you know, woman, immigrant, you know, all these things that might marginalize us in the workplace. Oh man. Um, well, I think don't get rid of the optimism. I am hyper-realistic. Um, and so I've never, had the like rose colored glasses or whatever on about what these companies are like. That said, I continue in the work that I do and that I did at each company because I have an optimistic view of things being possible um, and what can be changed. So I think folks should go in, understand that they're working in a corporation, um, but should also not be afraid to speak up. Like, What's the worst that could happen? You could be fired. You could be fired anyway if you don't speak up. So I think take the opportunity um, to say your piece and just do it with honesty and integrity the whole way. John, do you have a final, final question? Sure. Um, so you're in Santa Fe now. Do you have a Pinterest account? Or where are you going to share those photos of the chickens? And <laughs> Um, I asked that Pinterest delete my account. I do not have a Pinterest account anymore. Um, but I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. You can see the chickens on my Twitter fleet and on my Instagram stories. They're very cute. They're about a week old now. Okay. <laughs> that was going to be my final, final, final question is, 
Okay, so how do we get a hold of you or anyone who's tuning in who wants to follow your work uh, and support you? Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm I'm on all of them, um, and my DMs are open. So I really appreciate it when people reach out. Ifoma, thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, doing all this work and making it a better place for all of us. Um, John, you have the last words. I'll share your thanks to Ifoma. Thank you again. And thank you to all of you watching us, listening to us, uh, perhaps reading about us. You can find out more programs again at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for more Michelle Meow shows at the club. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you again in person someday.